Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. I'm Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. We bring political analysis and commentary on events in Alberta and Canadian politics. We discuss policy and look for expert insights into topics relevant to government, policymakers, and issues that face voters. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, Robbie. So what episode are we on? We're on number seven. Episode number seven. Lucky number seven with the free speech conversation. Free speech conversation. So we've <laughs> touched on this a little bit when we were working on one of our podcasts recently, and we didn't want to go down a rabbit hole because <laughs> we figured this could be a couple hour conversation and it deserves some time to kind of marinate and explore (laughs) and it's going to be like where where do we even start because I had a conversation with uh, David Kahn as we know is constitutional lawyer and we uh, like the way that he started of course was with what our with what our charter rights and with Jason Kenney with Doug Ford asking universities, uh, post-secondary institutions, because it's all of them, uh, to adopt principles that are like the Chicago principles. The Chicago principles are based on the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And our our charter rights are not as unlimited as what the First Amendment has proven to be in the U.S., that's correct. In the Charter of Rights and Freedoms when it comes to, um, so there's a difference in the U.S. they have the right to free speech. In Canada, we have the right to freedom of expression. And so yeah. they're similar, but they're not homogenous. There are some slight differences between the two for sure. And I'm actually going to look this up because I know that the limitations of our charter rights are actually listed right there but i don't know if uh the first amendment is actually if it's if it actually mentions any limitations theirs is pretty broad the first amendment to the constitution says congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for redress of grievances. So, yeah, there's this this pretty specific that they have no limitations. So, yes, it is. um, But the thing that gets a little bit lost in the discussion or debate around free speech and i think this happens both in canada and in the us is that it's more so meant to protect citizens from the government infringing upon their right to free speech or freedom of expression Mm -hmm. and it doesn't apply to private entities or to private individuals and so for example you're certainly free to share your opinion that, uh, you know, one race is better than the other or that Mm -hmm. one religion is better than the other. And what the rules or the law says basically is that the government won't take action to prevent you from doing that. Right. Yeah, that's actually, and that's something that I read an opinion piece where, uh, a gentleman was actually looking, I think I still have it open, uh, in Ontario, was he went through the updated versions of the policies at Ontario uh, post-secondary institutions, and he was miffed because there was more than one institution that was still actually putting, that was still actually putting some limitation on 
what they would accept from uh, students and faculty. So he was not happy. That review is actually up. Uh, it's coming very soon. So he, he mentioned that the charter doesn't apply to post-secondary institutions, like they're, uh, they're separate entities. And now, even if it doesn't apply to an institution, it still applies to a, uh, you know, to the individuals who may attend there. But again, our, like even, I guess just, just reading it with no legal interpretation, the First Amendment is broader where our rights to freedom of expression have limitations listed right in there. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of wonder, because another thing, like the, the Chicago principles as well, and that's, that's just what their statement is uh, also referred to, a nickname, if you will, that is a private entity. Right. That's a university. It's a university. It's a private entity. And they adopted this based on the First Amendment. The fact that both Kenny and Ford are suggesting that this actually be placed into our law and then pushed upon uh, the individual institutions. I feel like that's an overreach. Part of the challenge stems in Canada around speakers who are trying to oppose transgender rights who have been forced to cancel their appearances at universities due to perceived or real security threats as a result of protests against those speakers. Mm-hmm. And then the other um, case where this has kind of reared its head a little bit has been in the pro-life movement with demonstrations and whatnot, where there are times that they're using graphic imagery to try and make their case. And mm-hmm. certainly the social justice movement has pushed very hard to not allow those things to happen and has taken to large protests and you haven't really seen a lot in Canada where those protests have become violent but there are places in the U.S. where it has and so at least at this time the controversy surrounding the free speech that is or freedom of expression that's being quote-unquote stifled is topics that are kind of near and dear to politicians who place themselves on the right side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this kind of has also come up, though, at varying times, um, recently even in Alberta, where the University of Alberta decided to grant a degree, an honorary degree to David Suzuki. And so there was quite a lot of pushback and effort to try and stop Suzuki from receiving that degree or being at the university and making a speech because it was against or because Suzuki is against the Alberta oil sands and the development of our energy infrastructure. Um, So, you know, it definitely cuts two ways and I, I see why and where groups on the right are making an effort to try and make sure that there's space for their causes and their concerns to be represented in post-secondary education um, venues. But I also wonder if they're not being a little bit short-sighted in terms of pushing these policies that may wind up backfiring on them in the long run. Well, and that's like... We don't we don't actually have anything other than, uh, you know, Kenny's or sorry, the the UCP's comment that they would that they would require post-secondary institutions in Alberta to comply with the Chicago principles. Other than that, we don't actually know what that would look like. But John Carpe or the JCCF, whatever, I find them, you know, intricately connected 
but they put out a draft policy that they sent to the UCP. They also, they did also send one to Doug Ford when they were looking at adopting it. So I looked through their proposal and to start with, and this was a fun conversation that we had last night, was I have a bias. I have an extreme bias against the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms because I've followed some of their other work. I've followed their their arguments and their push against Bill 24. I've gone through their website. I've looked at their previous cases. Um, to me, I feel like their work is very centered on you know uh, bigotry disguised as religious freedom. So I come to the table with that bias already in place and I'm reading between the lines of the policy proposal and looking at how that benefits them specifically. But at the same time, when I was reading through the policies, there's a little bit that I feel was some overreach, like them defining what the public spaces at the university were. I found that to be an overreach because the university itself uh, or college campus or, or wherever to me should be able to dictate what they consider to be their public spaces. Um, I also feel like if this becomes problematic, that a post-secondary institution should be able to say, uh, demonstrations are absolutely allowed on our campuses, but from now on, they are only allowed in these spaces. Mm -hmm. Right? So I, I feel like I feel like this freedom of expression uh, dictation, I, I don't feel like it's really allowing for the proper autonomy of a post-secondary institution to make some of their own decisions. And the way that it's set up now, uh, the Post-Secondary Learning Act 2003, yes, I did have to go through it, mention or sorry doesn't mention anything about free speech or free expression yeah so every individual uh every individual institution is able to make their own policies and to me that is what smaller government does it's interesting because when you look at historically the post-secondary institution, um, at least my understanding of it, is that the idea behind post-secondary institutions is that they're supposed to push free thought and and encourage debate um, mm -hmm. and dialectic discussion. I would argue that over certainly the course of the probably last 20 years or so, post-secondary institutions have become more left-leaning in terms of their academic standing and discussion. And can you argue that the more educated you become, the further left you become? Um, <laughs> I don't know, but when you look at, you know, university instructors and professors and whatnot, they very often operate in a unionized environment. And um, particularly in Alberta, you look at the NDP, which is obviously the furthest left mainstream party that we have, um, their core constituency tends to be university students and professors, right? And so, you and know, people maybe... with a, a university degree. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe there is an element of truth to the belief that universities have become a breeding ground for left-wing, I won't say leftist, but left-wing mm -hmm. views and policy. And so maybe this is the conservatives trying to put their fingers on the scale the other way to give some greater exposure to right-wing ideals and policy within the context of a post-secondary institution. Mm -hmm. 
is that a good thing? Is it not? I, I'm not really 100% sure what the answer is. Um, but if the ruling parties need to take steps like that to encourage people to engage or, or give them a platform to engage with their movement, is that problematic? And would you see the same sort of support or defense of free speech, quote unquote, or free expression, if it was the other way and it was communist groups that were trying to demonstrate or spread their message at post-secondary institutions? Well, and it's... I guess, like, as, as you were talking, what was going through my head were particular speakers who have caused uh, the most uproar. And we're talking about people like, uh, oh, Ann Coulter is one. Uh, Faith Goldie is another. These are individuals who are not open to debate, Right. These are these are individuals who espouse a certain viewpoint. And I think this is and this is possibly where do you remember the meme? It was something about we, you know, we shouldn't have or we were told to stay away from conversations about religion and politics. What we Mm -hmm. should have been taught is how to have difficult discussions or sorry, discussions about difficult topics. And. That, I think, is something that is missing. Like, the, I, I think if you're going to... In, inviting one of these speakers to sit down and have a conversation with someone who, you know, in a, in a moderated environment where you can actually initiate dialogue, where you can see that dialogue, rather than offering someone a platform where they can just espouse their views. And I'm not positive what what the setups were around some of these things. Um, there was something recently at, the, uh, at Mount Royal University as well. There was a gentleman who, uh, he's, a, he's a former Muslim, he's now an atheist, and he had been invited to speak uh, before the New Zealand attack the New Zealand terrorist attack, they canceled his appearance because they felt it was too close. And so he's critical of, I guess, the Muslim religion or some of the teachings within. I'm really not 100% sure because I unfortunately didn't see him. But there were a lot of people that said, why is this, you know, why is this a problem? We can't actually stifle criticism of a particular religion or you know just because it might be offensive and i i found that i agreed with that so it's like it's it's tough when you're looking at some of these really controversial characters and wondering whether or not it's the fact like i don't know ann coulter on twitter is you know pretty jaw-dropping on a regular basis says really <laughs> stupid things and I just imagine that person giving a speech and then walking away to me that's not that that isn't encouraging you know discussion or ideas what that's doing is just allowing someone to have a platform I, I think this is a problem with social media as well as that we get into echo chambers and you're right um probably a better way to look at having freedom of expression is to do it in a venue that allows for that expression to be challenged. Mm -hmm. And so having debates purposefully having opposing viewpoints. um, But this is something that's not just done on the right. It's also done on the left as well, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You give somebody who confirms a bias that you have a platform to present their views unchallenged and what you're doing is indoctrinating people you're not encouraging free thinking and free thought right right and so that's really ultimately in my view what 
freedom of expression and freedom of speech should lead to is to uh, debate of ideas and a challenge of ideas. Um, the religion aspect is interesting because in the U.S. there's freedom of religion and there's a measure of that in Canada as well. And it's actually one of the limits on freedom of expression that there is in Canada is that um, there's a, a reasonable limit for hate speech, which refers to the advocacy and incitement of genocide or violence against a particular defined racial, ethnic, gender, sexual, religious, or other identifiable group. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the problem around the quote-unquote criticism of the Muslim religion is that the criticism is of the religion writ large. And when you look at Christianity, um, Islam, both of them have some real problematic aspects to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a very outspoken critic of the Catholic Church, um, but I'm a critic based on the cover-up of child abuse and the enabling of child abuse and the, the I'm not going to say justification because that's not really right, but, um, you know, taking people who have committed some very heinous crimes and making space for them to to be safe and continue their vocation. Those are the aspects of the religion that I have a problem with. So, right. I, you know, I'm not saying Catholicism or Christianity needs to be stopped. I'm saying those aspects and that behavior need to be dealt with swiftly and using the full force of the law. Right. And so I think that that's the difference between, for me, the criticism that you see of the Christian faith or particularly the Catholic church and the Muslim or Islamic um, religion rather is that the people who are critics of Islam are saying that the religion needs to be wiped out and all adherence to it need to be wiped out. And so, you know, if you focus on the fundamentalists, if you focus on the abuse of women's rights um, and freedom of choice and freedom of expression, particularly in a free Western country, those are legitimate criticisms. Um, if you focus on the abuse of women and children, those are legit legitimate criticisms. And they're things that are behavior focused that you can try and push a church or a religion to reform on. Um, but if you're starting from the viewpoint of, you know, as a Jew, you don't have a right to exist or to follow that religion. Or if you're starting from a point of as a Muslim or a follower or adherent to the Islam faith, you don't deserve to have a space to worship or your religion shouldn't exist. Of mm -hmm. course, there's going to be pushback. Right. And so th there needs to be intelligent criticism that's rooted in fact and is rooted in the problematic aspects of the religion and so i think that that's why you're seeing this pushback on islamophobia and and whatnot and so if we can recenter the discussion on what are the problematic tenets of the faith and how do we address them and you know what do we do to address fundamentalists within any religion really right um whether it's christianity or islam um then you can have a more productive conversation uh, but there's just particularly in the social media sphere there's so little room for nuance in discussion and like I said, you you find yourself in an echo chamber where you're only looking for people that reinforce your worldview or support your biases. And so that's a problem. And I think that it's something that in the long run is probably going to wind up having to be addressed by government is how do you regulate 
free speech in a way that allows people to have freedom of expression, encourages that dialectic debate and discussion, um, but also respects people's freedom of religion and freedom of expression at the same time. As we were talking about this too, I was thinking that as people that sit on the center of the spectrum, we promote dialogue on a regular basis. We think that you can find that happy medium ground. And I like I just I wonder I wonder about whether or not it's it's the fact that these these individuals who have I'm not going to say a meteoric rise by any means, but a lot of these individuals got the attention they were looking for, not because they were interested in having conversations, but because they said controversial things, um, you know, that that whole political correctness, uh, I don't know, the people that are against political correctness. And I have fought this for at least the last four years that I've really been on social media because I was raised to have manners. I was raised to treat <laughs> others with respect. And I also like, so, so there's that, I mean, a regular occurrence because my grandmother lived in the same house as me. Right. So I have this weird mix of being raised by a feminist who came of age in the 60s, early 70s, and a, a woman who was born in the Depression. So these two give me this really weird uh, spectrum of, I guess, uh, what I think is proper behavior. But so I, I have that mind your P's and Q's was a regular thing that was said to me when I left the house right it was it was always because that's how i was raised so i have that but i also have a long history i have i have twice not worked in customer service out of the 24 or so different jobs that i've had i engage with people for a living i always have uh, whether it was like i said so you know customer service related i was a waitress i was I worked in retail. How, how else do I say you just treat people with common courtesy? I don't find that that's a difficult thing to bring to my social media at all. <laughs> Again, this is, you know, this is a lifetime of yeah. experience. But this is why I fight against this you know, when people say, why should I be politically correct? Why should I worry about someone else's feelings? Okay, I'm not exactly worried about someone else's feelings but I do know how to interact with others and like and I I do I get a lot of commentary on on social media with people saying things like the best one was your ability to suffer fools should be an elective <laughs> <laughs> but and but I do it you know politely right I I may be somebody may be attacking me or my position most you know usually it goes overboard and it's attacking me but I don't feel the need to do it back and and eventually it does de-escalate in some cases it doesn't I have like three people blocked but other than that I generally have decent conversations even on Twitter and sometimes it takes a while for people to realize I'm not attacking them but so the political correctness thing that that some people are railing against again it was how i was raised it's common courtesy so the idea of free expression again to me means something very different right i i want to see that free uh flow of ideas i want to see that dialogue but i don't believe that the instances that I've seen that have come up as as issues, like the one at the University of Alberta with the Pro-Life Association, I, I don't see these groups actually trying to have that dialogue. It's it's provide me with an echo chamber, get my supporters there, let's have a rally. That's very different 
Yeah, I I think there's an element of bully politics that's involved too. And again, you know, I see this on the left and the right. Um, and I'm very much, I think for the most part, I'm the same as you. Like I, I have friends in the UCP who work for the government and um, were even elected as MLAs. And I have friends in the NDP who I have been involved in projects or campaigns with that were elected as MLAs. So, you know, I, I don't find a hard time finding common ground with most of them. But what I do observe and see a lot of times is that there, there is no room for debate or finding common ground. And it's about cudgeling someone into coming to your position, right? And, um, you know, use the, the pro-life group as an example. I think that in a majority of pro-life people, there's very little room for nuanced discussion about, you know, what what are the circumstances under which an abortion might be required or um might be desirable is not the right word but allowable because i don't think anybody truly wants an abortion no um but you see and this has even been represented by some of the current sitting recently elected mlas like uh joseph shaw um as an example he, he when he was running federally before he talked about a foot in the door approach. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you, you incrementally chip away at the rights of a woman's right to choose. And then eventually you just completely outlaw abortion or completely eliminate access to it altogether. Mm Um, you also see this a little bit on, the left not a little bit um a fair bit and you know like uh, i've seen some people as an example um edmonton public school board trustee bridget sterling made a post the other day about how she was so tired of social media and being criticized for not being angry enough and not being left-wing enough um and you know she's probably one of my more left-wing friends or associates um but there's this expectation of an ideological purity thing and you can't cede any ground you can't say hey you know what maybe maybe this isn't this that bad maybe we should give this a chance or maybe you know maybe this is the wrong approach maybe let's try this approach and it seems like there's just an element of absolutism that if you're not a hundred percent opposed to your opponents then you're not a good teammate and you're not a good ally Um, And, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ community, I see it. Um, As a centrist, I see it in both left and right wing politics where, you know, you're criticized for saying, hey, my opponent actually has a good idea. Let's explore this. Let's see what we can do to work with and support this. Um, And, you know, I've I've seen that quite a bit. Uh, Another example for me is uh, Janice Irwin who is a recently elected NDP MLA, um, is somebody that I've known for a few years, and I think she's a phenomenal person. So when she decided to seek the nomination in Highlands Norwood to replace outgoing MLA Brian Mason, I said, hey, you know what? I wouldn't vote NDP, but if you would, or if you lean left... Um, Janice is a great person. I know she's in it for the right reasons. She's got a good heart. She's intelligent. She works hard. She'd be a great MLA. And people, even in the Conservative Party, were like, this isn't how you do politics. You're so dumb. And I think that, that we need more of that. And so, again, you know, like my my right to freedom of expression was being criticized because I wasn't you know, this militant, only Alberta party people are good type approach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's unhealthy um, and it does a lot to discourage, 
debate and to seek common ground and to encourage discussion that's open and honest and tries to focus on solutions. And so I just, I, I really think that the discussion that's happening right now is misguided and it's going to do more to entrench people and encourage more of that tribalistic absolutism that you kind of see in politics right now. And I'm sure eventually it will swing the other way, but we're going to go through a period where it's going to get nasty. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And, oh, remember how my parents moved in with me? Yep. (laughs) So it's been an interesting... uh, less than one month it it I think it's actually been less than two weeks in total it doesn't feel like it Mm -hmm. they don't listen to my podcast um (laughs) but here this is the reason I'm bringing this up is because I was raised in kind of a in a way a, a little bit of a militant environment um and and they were on different sides of the ideological spectrum, mom mm-hmm. and Nana. So there was one who was very, very conservative, uh, social conservative, absolutely. There was the other one who was absolutely not, but also didn't appreciate uh, ideas that went against what she considered to be right. So essentially, there was a lot of idea um, suppression in my in my youth and growing up and this has been interesting over the last couple of weeks because i have raised my children to be quite independent also to i i respect their autonomy to make certain decisions so like i know uh when my littlest one was four i allowed him because he had drawn on the walls And I was like, well, that sucks. But then I thought, you know what? This is his room. Have at it, right? It's it's your space. If you want to draw all over your walls, then, you know, go ahead. I'm not going to clean it up every day. And I I left it. And, you know, when when my parents were moving in, uh, they actually ended up with one of those rooms and we had to paint everything. And... I heard about this so regularly. Why would you allow them to do that? Why would you, you know, why didn't you do something? And I'm like, feeling like I should have. And it's going to be special, I think, maintaining the person I've become and not reverting to the person that I was raised as. And all I'm saying is <laughs> that the suppression of ideas and and also this purity, right, it's, it exists in so many levels of your life, I think. And when we look at it being applied to something gr- more grand, like a like a post-secondary institution, or even like our K to twelve system, you know, anything that our kids are involved in, anything that we're involved in, um, you know, we we have to. I think that we have to allow for for people to move freely in between them. And that's something that I'm really not seeing as well. Like we can look at it politically. Uh, the Even in the Alberta party, do you remember when, uh, when the PC party was officially dead, when Jason Kenney won the leadership and there was that influx of political, you know, uh, no, passionate. That's... Yeah. And, and very passionate, very, you know, hardworking. Uh, um, I, I don't want to say they had, uh, you know, a deep ideological belief, but they had a deep commitment, right, to the political process. And they, their party just lost, kind of thing. As soon as Jason Kenney won, they were, they were out, they were done. And we saw some of that, right? There were some Alberta party ideologues who were like, nope, this is, this is a PC takeover. But they're, and and is that is that new? Because I mean, in Alberta, you know, look at all the people who are. I'm conservative. I've always been conservative, and I will remain conservative no matter what seems to be happening to the conservative movement. So is there? 
like, is there just that unwillingness to accept that people can be fluid both in their ideas and their support? Yeah, I think there's an element of that. The other thing that I see is what it means to be a conservative is changing. And Mm. um, I've talked about this before. It's uh, Dr. Kate Antonova is a Twitter personality that is... um, has studied classic conservatism and she even says what it means to be a conservative isn't the same as what it used to be. And that conservatism has really changed and it's kind of morphed more into um, a populist slash dominionist kind of movement. Mm. And so I think that that's a natural progression of politics as well is that over time, you know, we're, we're not babies, but we have a relatively small frame or window of time to relate to. And if you look historically, what it means to be a conservative has evolved over time and what it means to be a liberal has evolved over time. And I think that that's a natural part of evolution of society and you know 20 years from now you might be seen as ultra liberal um or you might be seen as ultra conservative and that really depends upon who winds up in positions of power and what policies they implement and what the new societal norms are right so yeah there's definitely an element of that people especially when they join a political party and they sign up or they donate or they volunteer or put effort into it, it becomes a project of passion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even, I mean, yourself and myself, I think that we almost have a family-like connection. We've been through some crap together. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, when you get that real intense emotional bond to something, of course you're going to fight for it and you're going to see people that perhaps have different values or different um, ideals or beliefs that attach themselves to something that you've helped to build you're going to of course have a visceral response to that right so Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually going to take this back to Carpe's recommendations again it's the only thing that I have and so I have to keep using it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, but one of the things that, that he also wanted detailed, and this is something that the, the University of Chicago has detailed this as well, and it was about the right, or sorry, about peaceful assembly and disruptive, uh, uh, disruptive protests, protesting. Anyway, so he actually defined it. And... I'm wondering if you could remove the disruptive nature of some of the protests. Again, this has been more of a problem in the U.S. than Canada, but obviously the opportunity exists for it to become a bigger problem. So while that was being detailed, and is that something, do you think, that would improve the possibility for dialogue? If if you remove disruptive protest, and and it's just the disruptive behavior or the disruptive, yeah. and so the right to peaceful assembly, and he even put in there like you know that that still exists. Yeah. But um, and and this also of course was in response to the U of A pro life, yeah. uh, one that's going on because when the University of Alberta said you're going to need to pay seventeen thousand dollars to provide the security, mm-hmm. and. Uh, again, see, I'm so confused with myself, but I kind of agree with it because, um, you know, if it's if it's students, if it's fellow students that are protesting or members of the general public that are protesting this event, well, the event isn't doing anything wrong. Yeah. Right. And so basically that's kind of what what his recommendations are, are moving towards is that is that the the ones who are actually being disruptive, the ones who are requiring that security, because this event, this this uh, demonstration of free expression, shouldn't be penalized because these people are going to cause trouble. Yeah, I, I, 
I have mixed feelings on it <laughs> just because like I I was a part of the Alberta Party's leadership election committee and when we had our leadership debate at the university we were responsible for security costs because it's a political event and you may have protesters show up so for me, I'm kind of of the view that you have to have a reasonable expectation that if you're going to take controversial positions or that you are going to be politically active, that you do have to expect that that's going to happen. That's and I costs. Yep, there are costs to it. And I've even seen or experienced like I was planning a, a counter protest to a Soldiers of Odin event. Right. And we had to get the police service involved to make sure that there was protection because there's been skirmishes that have broken out. Now, in that case, I was fortunate that the Edmonton Police Service was able to provide some liaisons and have some have some people there to ensure that nothing happened. That can't always be the case, but I think that there's a reasonable expectation that if you're planning events, you have to, particularly if you're taking a controversial position, that you have to expect that you would be responsible for security and ensuring that both the people who are attending and taking part in your event are safe from potential protesters. Now, maybe the answer is going back to what you said earlier, there needs to be defined public spaces or maybe there needs to be defined protest spaces and call it protest square and... (laughs) There's a 50 meter buffer or a 30 meter buffer between two groups. And this is where group A can be. And this is where group B can be. And if you cross those lines, then, you know, you're out of there. That type of deal, right? Part of me questions whether counter-protesting sometimes is effective. You know, we've got groups in Edmonton that are white supremacist groups, so that are coming up mm-hmm. and are out trying to organize a march. And so I think it's important to counter-protest those groups and not allow them to gain a following. Do I think that it's necessary to go out and counter-protest pro-lifers? No, I don't. I feel that I can respect their right to hold those views as long as they don't try and force those views on other people. And so I can vigorously oppose them in other avenues or venues using my words in my brain. When it comes to white supremacists, I just think that their tactics are a little different and quite a bit more violent and rooted in, to be frank, evil. They do need to be vigorously opposed. So there's lines that I think have to be defined as to what is socially acceptable and what's not. Mm -hmm. And those are challenging for sure. But difficult discussions is part of what being both a leader in a university and being a political leader of any sort are what you're kind of tasked and expected to do. And I think we've watered down that ability for our political leadership to do that. Mm-hmm. I look at I look at all rules the same way that I look at warning labels. The only reason that they're in place is because someone tried to take advantage of it or really didn't understand how it worked. Yeah. Which is that's nature. fine. Exactly. That's that's where we are in, in our human existence. And if something like uh, protests and uh, different speakers, if something like protests and different speakers need to have additional uh, additional rules applied to them, such as designated spaces for these events and designated spaces for the protesters, Yes, we might look at it and say, this is overreach, this is too much. But we also might look at it and say, well, this is necessary right now because for some reason we've lost the ability to understand that both of these individuals have a right to be doing this and we need both. We need them both respected. So it's bringing me over actually to the possibility that this definition that the UCP is looking at Uh, that this requirement may be that application of those rules because we've lost the ability to define what our individual rights are with respect to everyone else's rights. I think we've kind of got it down that we have rights individually. What we've lost is the reasoning that says so does everybody else. 
Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's possible that that these requirements, well, we look at them and say this is overreach, but maybe that's exactly what our current society needs. I is, think is it, a little bit more definition. I agree with that. And I think that the thing that we're going to see or we have seen is that in the absence of political leadership, you're going to see judicial leadership. Right. And it's part of why I don't lose a lot of sleep over groups like the JCCF2, even though he's a constitutional lawyer. <laughs> um, he's gotten his ass handed to him quite a bit in court. Yeah, that has that makes me feel better about it. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's one area that we're fairly lucky in Canada that the judicial appointment process isn't as political as it is in the U.S. That's not to say that there aren't appointments that do happen that are politically motivated. But Mm -hmm. on the balance, I think we've got a fairly nonpartisan judiciary. And yes, there are times where They've been more activist, but you're also seeing, like, I mean, even look at the Crutching government when it came to gay marriage. They, you know, lacked the political leadership to just make a decision and do it and mm-hmm. went to the Supreme Court to get a reference case that said, yes, you can do this and it doesn't violate the charter protections that are there for freedom of religion, right? One of the things that is problematic with our political system in this day and age is that politicians are always focused on a four-year cycle and focused on governing for re-election. So when it comes to big questions of societal import, and I would consider freedom of expression and freedom of speech to be one of those, we fortunately have a judiciary that is more free of political consideration and is able to make those tough decisions that then are or can be supported by politicians and gives them political cover. So I think that that's probably what the outcome is going to wind up being is that the judiciary gets involved in delineates where that line is between freedom of expression and your your rights and um, when that freedom of expression crosses those lines. It's funny actually because I think I've come full circle during this conversation that's what I'm here for <laughs> now where did actually that was something that we didn't talk about where where were you starting from were you starting from this is a decent idea this is a meh idea or I really hate it I'm kind of meh and the reason I'm kind of meh is because it's quite clear that there's political and partisan motivations for pushing this and it's because mm the right-wing perspective, particularly as it relates to pro-life, pro-choice, and transgender rights, is what's motivating this so that people can say truly offensive, awful things about women who want to exercise their right to have an abortion and about transgender people who are frankly just fighting for their right to exist and have medical care. From my view, that's the primary motivation is they're using freedom of expression as cover for religious intolerance and bigotry. But as I said earlier, I think that there's a little bit of a political miscalculation in what the long-term unintended consequences of this might be. And if you get communist groups that are organizing in large numbers on university campuses you bet your ass that the conservatives are going to be complaining about this can't be allowed to happen and this crosses all sorts of lines and so i just it's it's politically expedient but it's short-sighted and i think it's going to backfire um and so for me I I don't know that my viewpoint has necessarily changed, um, but I'm reasonably confident that the discussion needs to be had and that where we will probably wind up is in the lack of political fortitude that our leaders have. It'll wind up being a question that's ultimately resolved by our judiciary. Oh, okay. So you feel much more confident that this shouldn't end up in the death spiral of poor conservative policy. No, as long as it doesn't make space for conversations around white supremacy and doesn't impact in a real but way. But it'll have to. 
Well, it may ultimately have to, but I think then that's where the judiciary gets involved and steps in and winds up making decisions that are meaningful and redress that. So Yeah, and I think as well when I was when I was using the two uh, Ann Coulter and Faith Goldie, both of them I think have crossed lines, but there are others who are learning from this, right? Kaylin Fort is not an overt white supremacist sympathizer. The way that she speaks, the way that she has the conversation is probably different. Yeah. And so as we see these, as we see these new uh, emerging leaders coming through that are willing to have the conversation in the way that you and I want to see the conversation, which is that free exchange of ideas. I think in a way, I feel like it's going to be a less violent uprising that will absolutely become violent, but I think they will be able to garner their support in a much more elite and well-mannered way that's actually scarier than what has happened in the past. I think they will reach people on an intellectual level to turn them in into that. But I think, but I think it's, I think that, uh, or or maybe that's always been the case, right? I mean, look at the cult leaders, right? That charismatic person that could come in, uh, who was the Haley's Comet people, the Hale Bot, yeah. yeah, like they were. I remember reading something about them and they were like, you know, they had a former city councillor and his wife, like well-educated individuals who bought into this. So, you know, again, when, at what point do you protect the public from that type of freedom of expression? Yep. Well, it's, yeah. it's uh, again, a, a difficult question. And I think I, I just keep going back to in today's society and political climate, it's going to most likely be a judiciary that winds up determining those limits and where those lines are. And ultimately, I think the, the fight for rights, whether they're religious rights, whether they are rights to equality for people of color or LGBTQ people, it's never a linear trajectory. It's kind of a roller coaster, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think even in society and politics, it's an ebb and a flow. It seems to swing left at times and it seems to swing right at times. And overall, you have gradual progress that is made. And I'm reasonably confident that we'll continue to see that. And there'll be periods where there seems to be large regression and there'll be periods where there seems to be significant progress. Overall, those, when you look at the macro level, are going to generally balance out. Okay. And I know that you have to go, but I'm actually, uh, I think that you just gave me the idea for the next episode. And I, although I hate to end it on this note, but with everything that we just discussed, your, uh, your faith in the judiciary, which is just amazing and it's, inspiring but it also made me realize that if the dominionist groups want to make real change they need to take the judiciary yeah so what an awful way to end this (laughs) but let's end it on some good news we're on (laughs) itunes finally (laughs) yay yay that is good news, and I think I think that should be I think that should be something that we maybe start to look at. But I think I don't think that the free speech conversation is done. Nope. Um, but I, I do like the turn that this took. Yeah. Because. No, I, yeah. I do too. Good conversation. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode. This has been the Political R and D podcast with Robbie Krieger Smith and Deirdre Mitchell McLean. Where can people find you, Deirdre? They can find me on Twitter at Mitchell underscore AB. And you can find me online at RKS Alberta. The Political R&D Podcast is available wherever you get your podcast, And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Political R&D. Goodbye, Robbie. Goodbye, Deirdre. <laughs>